evening everyone are we are we here are you here uh welcome to another dispatch live it's eight o'clock on the east coast five o'clock on the west coast and seven o'clock here in the midwest six o'clock not to leave out any of you mountain time zone types um happy to be joined by jonah goldberg and david french not particularly happy to be talking about another mass shooting however uh, 4th of July, as I'm sure most of you heard, parade in Highland Park, Illinois, turned deadly yesterday when a shooter atop a rooftop started targeting people in and attending the parade. Um, David, you wrote about this and started your newsletter today saying there's this impulse understandable you've done mm -hmm. it before i've done it before yeah jonah's done it before to immediately turn to pol what's the policy solution here it's it's reg flag laws this it's ban on assault weapons that it's more funding for mental health policy here and your newsletter argues that that seems and feels increasingly inadequate the more of these that we see um can you just talk us through your argument to start us yeah. off tonight? So to be clear, I'm not saying forget policy, right? right? I'm not saying that at all. I have strongly advocated red flag laws and we can talk more about those later. Illinois had a red flag law that obviously didn't work here and we can talk about why that is. But there's really, I, I base my argument on two really important, one a book and one a New Yorker essay, two really important things that I've read in the last few years. Uh, one is the book by Robert Putnam in 2015 called Our Kids. And Putnam is most famous for the book Bowling Alone, where way back in 2000, he identified how increasing loneliness and isolation was going to be a real real threat to our nation and our culture and was way ahead on, on spotting that. And then in 2015, he wrote a book that I would really recommend to people called Our Kids about the different childhoods that people live in this country right now and that basically uh, a world like i grew up in in 1970s and 80s kentucky uh, is increasingly rare and that is a uh, a neighborhood where there are people from all sort of social classes are together they go to school together they live in neighborhoods together um, there wasn't a neighborhood just for the rich kids and a neighborhood just for the poor kids from sort of lower middle class to upper middle class we were we we're all together. And then as a result of this now class and income segregation, what you're beginning to see is that their entire classes and groups of kids in crisis that a lot of the best functioning families in America and sort of like the people who have a lot of wealth and, and resources just never see, they just don't interact with them. They're just out there isolated. And then the other one was this New Yorker essay by Malcolm Gladwell where he used the work of Stanford sociologist Mark Granovetter to argue that what we're dealing with with these mass shootings isn't um, a series of one-off crimes, but in essence, what's like a slow motion riot. And he used the comparison of how the first person to pick up the brick and throw it through a window lowers the threshold for the next person, and the next person lowers the threshold for the next person to the point where there's a, a, an extremely low threshold for the next person to to be violent. And he says, what you're seeing seeing with each mass shooting that the threshold is lowering. And so what we're what we're seeing is 
this combination of kids struggling in isolation and a number of them, an increasing number of them at the edges turning to these horrific acts of mass violence. And now that's the most extreme way that these, these young men act out, but there are many other ways, drug addiction, more quote unquote routine violence, suicidal ideation, suicide. And what I, what I was trying to point out is that while we need to think about the big picture uh, policy, we also need to think about how can we intervene in kids' lives just in our own community, in our own social circle, in our, when we hear about some, a kid who's in crisis, don't think, uh, oh, I hope somebody does something about it. I hope that somebody takes care of it, that we have to start taking ownership of the people in our own community and that we are, in fact, our brother's keeper. And then also, I kind of zoomed out a bit to this whole notion that we also have a lot of kids, boys, who don't know what it means to grow up and be a good man. Right. There is a, as a Derek Thompson wrote in the Atlantic, that there's, we have a real um, ch- crisis of what is the ideology of masculinity. I would say just sort of the very definition of masculinity. And we're caught between sort of two extremes at this point, a, a far left that says that traditional masculinity is itself toxic and a far right that's sort of saying, huh, you want toxic masculinity, I'll show you toxic masculinity. And then the middle are all these young boys and young men who are just at sea. Let me, let me follow up with you about the close of your newsletter today, and then I'll, I'll ask you about it first, and then I'll turn to Jonah. You write, public policy as a backstop against the inevitability of human vice. It does not develop character. It rarely provides a person with purpose. That's what we must do, and not just with our own kids. Uh, and then you go on to talk about fatherless children and, and the lost boys of American life. That There was almost a haunting echo when I read that of the 911 call of Nicholas Roski, who uh, traveled to the Washington, D.C. area in, in an attempt, apparently, to assassinate Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. On the 911 call, he said he had no purpose of his life, and he was trying to give his life purpose, trying to give yeah. his life meaning. There's a frustrating pattern here, and you pointed it out in your in your piece, it's the same kind of same profile. Um, and we hear these, these uh, reports increasingly of previous attempts, this particular shooter had uh, attempted suicide, apparently, in 2019, his, his uh, relatives called the police a week later, police visited with them determined that there wasn't anything they could do. He said he was going to quote, unquote, kill everyone. Yeah. Uh, a short time later, uh, he had a collection of knives. They confiscated the knives, a sword, a dagger, but nothing more happened. And then you hear an interview that his uncle gave to CNN in the aftermath of the shooting. And his uncle said, in effect, yeah, there were really no signs. Yeah, please. Really, really no idea that this was that this was coming. Um how do how do we you frame you framed it as a we question? How do we societally, um, maybe as men, since there are three men on here, what can we do when the men in his own life are not paying attention, don't care? Yeah, 
Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. I mean, um, you know, in our in our family, there have been situations where we have become aware of kids who are in crisis, and even kids, you know, who who have families, and we've reacted to that. You know, we've we've said, wait a minute, is there something we need to do? You know, is there something we need to do? And have not said, okay, it's totally up to that family when we know the family is in crisis. And right. so I think a lot of it is, um, you know, I, I put it this way, and I, I, I've been writing about this issue so much, sadly, over the, over the years that, you know, we're running up in, against a culture where we're trained, we've trained ourselves to mind our own business, to delegate interventions to professionals, to judge not the actions of others. And so we're put in this position where we sort of treat each family as an island. And if it's problem over there on that island, well, there's a problem over there on that island and kind of too bad for them. And well-functioning churches are really good at reaching out from island to island and sort of pulling everyone together. Um, but we don't have a lot of communities like that as much anymore. Uh, you know, a a sports team is an example of where dads can know kids who are not just their, you know, their sons, right. Or their sons or their daughters and can have an influence. And, and uh, you know, so I, each situation is different, but this idea that you're going to say when you know somebody is in crisis and you know them personally, and you're just going to say, well, I'm going to leave that to others. That's where, we have that's where i think we're in, we're we're creating real problems or or where we're contributing to real problems jonah i can imagine people watching saying i hear you you make good points and i'm with you theoretically but isn't it the case that if you see someone like this troubled young man and i mean i think there were outward indications that he was troubled it seemed pretty obvious that he was troubled, uh, easily observable indications that he had problems. You see, you see this, you notice it, and you say, you know what? I don't want to get involved. I don't want to inject myself, A, because it's not my business, and B, because there could be some physical risk to me and my family if I barge into somebody else's family and say, hey, look, your kid looks like he's he's having trouble, or I've I've heard that your kid is talking about killing people. I mean, is that part of the the challenge? And how do you get people to to abandon that? I mean, that seems to me a natural instinct. Yeah, and and again, I think it's I, 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 look. I, I largely I largely agree with David, but there are lots of cases where it's the right instinct. That's the bad part about this, right? Is because when you're talking about you know the laws of large numbers. There are a lot of maladjusted, weird, let's just say it, men or boys, <laughs> males out there, um, you know, and there used to be, I'm not casting aspersions of people with tattoos, that ship has sailed culturally, it's no longer <laughs> transgressive to have a tattoo, it's kind of conformist, but that's a different argument. Do you want to tell people about your tats now? I have no tattoos, but there, there was a time when you saw someone with a big old neck tattoo you could make a lot more assumptions about them than you can today. And um, similarly, you know, we, the, part of the problem with the, the, not to get all sort of 
cultural conservative curmudgeon. But part of the problems with the degradation of the culture is that the things that used to be not in the gun context, but just in sort of the cry for help context, you know, red flags are kind of harder to disassociate from people's weird per, you know, quirks. And so it is absolutely true that there are going to be cases where you really do need interventions. The, the thing that I think holds a lot of people back is like, I don't know what the equivalent, I'm, I'm sure Marilyn Manson is passe at this point, but like whatever the cultural equivalent of Marilyn Man Manson is today or any of that kind of stuff, or like, you know, one of the running gags in stranger things this season is as David and I can attest is like in the 1980s, there was this moral panic about Dungeons and Dragons. Right. You would never dream of turning someone in, you know, saying you might want to call the police and investigate this guy because he plays, you know, a multi, you know, a 12 sided die game, you know? Um, and so my only point is, is that there are some dysfunctions and are, there, there are some fashions that used to be considered sort of cries for help kind of behavior that are now you, you put yourself at risk if you start saying, Hey, your kid, this, your kid, that. And that's why it, it matters to know people. It actually matters to actually know the personalities is when you know people, when it's your nephew, when it's your kid's friend, you know, what's a cry for help and what's just sort of a rebellious fashion statement. And still there are going to be instances where people overstep. And I think in our culture, our non-judgmental culture, where you can't really say that stuff is weird or that stuff is sick and depraved or that stuff is whatever. People are afraid of seeming judgmental of, of getting into other people's business. And that's, that's a cultural taboo. That's going to take some work to get over a little bit. And sometimes, sometimes it's just not obvious. I mean, I think in something like this, when you have a young man who said, I want to kill everyone. Well, that's pretty obvious. And, and the fault lies in, in the parents for not raising that. And, and certainly it sounds like there are systemic problems um, that, that led this kid to not be addressed. There are other times when it's less obvious, you know, somebody doodles a, a shooting that would cause me great concern. Is it the kind of thing that would ca cause me to pick up a phone and call the principal of a school? Probably, but what if it's an otherwise normal, seeming well-adjusted kid and you're potentially getting this kid in a ton of trouble over something that he did because he was bored and trig, right? I mean, there are, not all of these are, are easy calls. How, how do you, how do you think about that? How do we approach that? You know, that may not of, be the best example. Let me stipulate. Yeah. I mean, but, lots of boys draw pictures of guns. Like if you look right? at, if you look at my elementary school artistry it was like one picture one hand-drawn picture of a battle in the revolutionary war the war 1812 or the civil war after another like um so lots of lots of kids do that um there's there is context though that can make things more troubling and also what part of it is like listening to your own kids mm -hmm. your your own kids tend to know who's fine and who's not fine. <laughs> and it's, so, you know, it's, it's not formulaic, but you know, if, if you have a, a, a son or a daughter who says that person, you know, Billy is in a dark place and we've seen him like drawing corpses, you know, I've got a couple of questions like, right. 
what's Billy's home life? Should I talk to his parents? You know, either if there's both at home or only one at home, is it as, uh, Hey, you know, do you, to your own kid, are you worried about this? Is this something that you're worried about? Well, then if they're worried, then maybe I escalate it more immediately. I, like I said, it's not formulaic. You don't want to sit here and create a world that says that any 14-year-old boy who draws a picture of a gun is immediately under suspicion as a potential mass murderer. Right, right. That's absurd. Um, but time and time again, when it comes to these mass killers, for example, the majority of them, this is something a 50-year National Institute for Justice-funded study showed, the majority of them broadcast their plans. And this guy, you know, they seized his knives, they seized a sword, um, the police were involved, the Buffalo shooter, the police were involved, they referred him for a psychiatric evaluation. A lot of these guys, it's not a, an edge case, right? Right. It's not. Yeah, Dave, can I ask you a question on that? I mean, why, why does it have to be a loved one or a school teacher petitioning for a red flag warrant or whatever we're supposed to call it? If the police have come to some kid's house and confiscated all his knives and his sword, right? If he was put on a, on a psychiatric watch, if he was, uh, if he said that he was going to commit suicide or that he wanted to kill a lot of people, can't cops just punch that into, I mean, I understand there'd be pushback on it, but like in the broad sweep of things, can't that just trigger a red flag of one form or another for the, the background check? So under Illinois law, a police can seek a red flag order. Yeah. Under New York law, police can seek a red, uh, law enforcement's ability to secure a red flag order is common in red flag statutes. But if the police don't know about it, or they haven't been trained in it, it's useless, you know? And, and I went, I wanted to look at some of these stats because I know in Florida, red flag laws are commonly deployed. So there's a, there's a piece um, going back from, from late May of this year. So as of May 25th, 2022, red flag orders had been employed almost 6,000 times in Florida. And I wanted to, I thought, well, what's the, what are the stats for Illinois? And so I looked at Illinois and the latest I could find was 2019 and 2020. And in 2019, this is the year that the law enforcement seized the guy's knives and sword. There were 34 red flag orders, 34 in a state of 13 million people. And in 2020, there were 19 in a state of 13 million people. So what does that tell me? It does not tell me that Illinois citizens are abnormally mentally healthy. It tells me that people are just not, including police, are not using the tool. It, it reminds me, it's, it's frustrating in the same way it's frustrating when you see that multiple um, statutes designed to prevent gun violence, such as straw purchaser prosecutions, they're just not done. They're just not done. So you, you pass a law and you say, wow, we did something. But if you don't know that it's there and you don't enforce it. I mean, this guy is a classic case of somebody tailor made for a red flag law and not yet. Yeah, the police officer briefing on this today said nothing we could do. And I thought, really, is that, is that really true? There was nothing you could do to describing the incidents in, in 2019. When you hear about something like the Florida, we, I'm going to incorporate a couple questions on this topic specifically. We'll move to, 
the second topic topic is Donald Trump losing his grip on the GOP in just a minute, and then we'll take questions on on both subjects and anything else after that. But a couple questions on this topic. Um, Paul Beltman says the thing about raising red flags about other people's kids that it can be weaponized so easily. How can you prevent abuse by someone trying to cause trouble? I mean, that seems like, you know, the 6,000, surely that includes, you know, a number of cases where somebody called and said, I don't like Billy because Billy made fun of his son or his daughter and tried to get him in trouble. Does that happen? I mean, certainly theoretically, that would be a concern. Well, I mean, red flag law, red flag petitions are denied, like they're not all granted. And there is evidence you have to come forward with. So it's, it's not like I can sort of say, well, I saw Jonah on Instagram uh, wrote that he just he, a picture of Jonah hunting. And I, he shouldn't have a gun, you know, like, that's not that doesn't work, you know, so you you, what you have to have is you have to have evidence. And the way I compare it to are these um, domestic violence restraining orders. Right. You can get domestic violence restraining orders, but you have to you have to have some evidence. So in Tennessee, for example, it says for good cause shown. There has to be proof. You can get an, even an ex parte domestic violence restraining order on for good cause shown. Um, so you have to have some evidence. And so a lot of the sort of the the hypothetical horror stories around red flag laws are based in this assumption that they'll be granted without evidence. Uh, and also they narrow, they don't, you don't have a floating, at least not in the statutes that I've seen. I can't warrant all 20 that are enforced between 19 states and DC. They're a narrow category of people can seek them. So family members or police, for example. And so if it's like some anti-gun activist who's trying to get red flag laws seizing the guns of all the local Second Amendment advocates, they just don't have standing to do that, right? They, they just can't do it. It has to come from a family member. It has to come from a police officer. In some places, it's like a school official. So you narrow it down. You have to have evidence. Um, and does it mean that it can never be abused? Domestic violence restraining orders are sadly sure. abused sometimes. Sure. But do we want to say there's no domestic violence restraining orders because they're occasionally abused? Right. No. Jonah, um, Tanner Sawyers asks a question about uh, the sex in this. Um, when we cited an example just a moment ago, we said it was Billy, 14-year-old Billy. We don't say it was 14-year-old Susie. The, the girls, by and large, are not doing this. Why is that? And so now I show traffic in grotesque sexual stereotypes. No, um, <laughs> uh, look, I mean, I, I, one, I mean, the, the easiest answer to that is because they're not, right? Because there is something about, you know, it's, you know, you can come up with a whole bunch of theories, but the simple fact is, is that most violent serial killers, most violent killers, are men. Uh, I think it was Marvin Wolfgang in, uh, in the 1950s and 60s did this landmark uh, criminological study of Pennsylvania or Philadelphia and found that um, basically it's, it's about six or 8% of criminals commit something over half of all the crimes. So it's a tiny fraction of men. 
And uh, there's, I'm partial to a lot of evolutionary psychology points about all of this, is, but there's something about testosterone. There's something about um, um, the way, you know, the way men are raised, but whatever the reasons are, I mean, we can, I mean, I, I'm, I'm happy to speculate, uh, you know, for the same reason that there's a higher distribution of, of crazy male genius um, than there is for female genius. Uh, there's also a much higher distribution of idiots among men. Um, and part of the argument is, is that in this way, the way to think about it is, is the average woman is probably smarter than the average man, but at the far end of the right tail, there are a lot of weird, dysfunctional, crazy genius men more than there are women. And it has to do, at least part of the theory has to do with the fact that um, men are more expendable evolutionarily. Um, and so you can afford to have a lot more diversity and experimentation and, and division of labor among men than you can among women, because women's primary pur purpose in an evolutionary environment is to have children, um, to give birth to children, I should say. And so I think there's some of that to it. But like, there's, there, I, I am unaware of any study. It's like men are more interested in pornography than women. There's no study that says otherwise. There's just differences. There are serious differences between men and women. And whatever those differences are, they're for kind of obvious reasons, or at least intuitive reasons, going to be much more profound in the, in the, in the neck of puberty <laughs> where, or the post-puberty, you know, where you're just awash in hormones and you're least socialized and your brain's less developed. And so that's why you see the majority of these kinds of things with young men. There's also a reason why young men historically are, soldiers i mean it's because they're wired differently you see i was talking to jake tapper recently and he was talking about how he interviewed one of the last guys to go to iwo jima he just died recently like 99 and he says a more gentle sweet old man you'll ever meet and then you go read what he did with a flamethrower you know in world war ii and you're like holy crap young men do crazy stuff and so uh if you, my only point is, I don't know the exact reasons. I don't think anybody knows the exact reasons, but if you're going to just say it's a cultural thing um, because of toxic masculinity in America, you're going to have to show me the society where these general trends directionally don't apply everywhere around the world. And I think that they do. David, you have a quick response on that and then we're moving to Trump. No, so I mean, speaking I think of toxic masculinity, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, I th that was a segue. You should be hosting. That <laughs> it, was, it was teed up right there for me, and I didn't do it. I mean, I, is there a civilization on Earth where yeah. women commit more murders than men? Have you ever heard of one in the history of the world? I mean, now also, I do th think the nature of murders that women commit are just very different than women right. are more likely to do. Uh, sort of euthanasia, death with, you know, sort of uh, mercy killing, that kind of thing. Anyway, there's a lot of differences. Yeah. So, and the, but I think the, and the really salient issue is not to me, men versus women. The really salient issue for me, for our purposes is why is America as a general rule, far more violent on all fronts than say Europe? <laughs> um, that's something that's very salient, much more so than the men versus women. And, it's, you know, if you look at violence, we are much more of a Latin American, South American country than we are a European country. Um, 
And uh, for example, there are more murders with knives and fists in the U.S., a higher murder rate with knives and fists in the U.S. than there is a murder rate, period, in Britain with weapons of all types. Um, so we're just a more, we're a more violent civilization. And it's very, I think, very interesting and important for us to try to figure out why and do something about that. And I do think it's important to point out, I know David doesn't disagree, that is a cultural thing. Mm -hmm. Right, because the genetic stock of right. Sweden <laughs> was once known to be quite violent. Um, you know, and, um, True. You know, Vikings did lots of bad things at one point. Um, and that's just, I mean, that's just a weird quirk of history and sociology. Joan and I are fans of the historical documentary, The Last Kingdom, and that tells you all you need to know about those. Uh, I knew it was coming. Vicious we games. Or something like that. Although there's a great scene in The Last Kingdom where the king of Mercia, I think, uh, drives a sword through a messenger just because he makes him mad or something like that. And his aide says, Sire, you can't just go around wantonly murdering people. This is the ninth century after all. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Moving on. Um, I want to talk about Donald Trump. There, there is a proposition that's been hotly debated. Uh, it's been hotly debated really for seven years. But in particular, since the beginning of the January 6th committee hearings, and that is that Donald Trump is losing his grip on the Republican Party. Uh, Jonah, is that true? Um, I think yes. What's your evidence? Okay, so <clears throat> I understand there's some his polling has improved lately. I suspect that has more to do with sort of rally against the media during the January 6th hearing stuff. Um, I don't think that has a long shelf life to it. Uh, if you look at, uh, I think it's Politico or Axios has a piece today, the amount of money and polling support and elite buy-in for Ron DeSantis to run for president is really kind of shocking. Um, if you look at, and also we've already seen Ron DeSantis beat Trump in a matchup already. Um, head to head in a poll taken in New Hampshire. That's right. In late May, thirty nine percent for DeSantis, thirty seven for Trump. If I remember correctly, um, there's also, I mean, there's a lot of anecdotal. It's sort of, it's largely a take of a feel for the moment kind of thing. But if you watch how they talk about Donald Trump, at least out of prime time on Fox now, um, it is basically stipulated that what Trump did on January 6th was terrible, but this Pelosi is very badly, I mean, this committee is very badly structured and Nancy Pelosi made a mistake and all that kind of, okay, fine. Um, you get the sense that, uh, so another example would be in the, I, I can't remember her name, but the African-American lady who had that surprise surge towards the end in the um, Senate primary and in Pennsylvania. Kathy Barnett. The ultra MAGA person. Correct. She basically took the position, which you're hearing other people starting to take, which is that the MAGA movement is larger than Trump, that he bent, he came to our values, we didn't go to his, um, that this movement is about more than just one person. And there was a time where you, that kind of thing would get no traction, would get no oxygen. And then there's just the fact that like Donald Trump seems still to be utterly incapable of reading the room on the right the way he once was 
because he is so fixated on his on the vindication of his own ego and he can't stop talking about the 2020 stuff which just as a matter of politics is a bad idea and there are a lot of people in politics these days who are willing to say so and they wouldn't have even a year ago so those are just some of my reasons those are that those are very good david let me add to jonah's list you saw last week after the testimony of cassidy hutchinson before the january 6th committee pretty stalwart trump defenders uh at least in the media the new york post and the washington examiner offer thundering editorials in effect new york post called trump a tyrant washington examiner which i will point out uh was once so trumpy that it replaced the weekly standard which was put to bed put to death in part because we were not Trumpy. Um, the, the Washington Examiner wrote a piece saying he should never be allowed in your public life again. You've seen um, elsewhere uh, other Republicans willing to speak out against them in ways that feel new and feel different. There's a there's an interview, terrific Associated Press story last week from Steve Peoples, very good reporter. I think he did it with a couple other reporters. And you interviewed Mark Short, um, Vice President Mike Pence's top political advisor, was chief of staff to Pence in in the White House, and asked about Trump and and twenty twenty four and his political strength. And Short said, "Quote: Republican activists believed Donald Trump was the only candidate who could beat Hillary. Now the dynamic is reversed. He is the only one who has lost to Joe Biden." Wow. I mean, that's a zing from Mike yeah. Pence's top political. I mean, we, we, that would have been unheard of three months ago. And now people are saying this sort of in the open, and it does feel like it's being chipped away a bit. Is is that right? Is Jonah right? I mean, I think the, the, the thing that proves that Jonah is right is Brad Raffensperger is the Republican nominee for Secretary of State in Georgia. That's another good one. Yep. I mean, and and I center around him more than Brian Kemp because Brian Kemp, what he did the right thing in the election. He was in Trump's crosshairs as a result, but he didn't take on Trump in the direct way, like absolute frontal attack way that Brad Raffensperger did. Um, Kemp just did the right thing, which was good, great, glad he did it, thankful for it. Brad Raffensperger said, you know what, I'm going to absolutely confront you and humiliate you <laughs> during the stop the steal effort. Trump circles the calendar to get rid of him and Raffensperger is still here. I don't, that doesn't happen if Trump ha is the unquestioned master of the Republican universe. Uh, that just doesn't happen at all. And, and you can kind of see that the, the real MAGA diehards are well that you know you need to discount that because some democrats crossed the aisle and voted for him etc cetera, etc cetera, some sour grapes but so i i think he's slipping to a degree but here's the sobering thing as of right now if you believe a harvard harris poll that just came out trump has a stronger grip on the gop than the sitting president of the united states who is a democrat has on the democratic party <laughs> Is that really surprising, though, if you look at Joe Biden's performance in office? I mean, he has, can we just say he has been a pretty awful president? <laughs> um, we've had two consecutive awful presidents. Fair enough. And but, but Joe Biden, awful... if you look at his performance, I mean, there's a reason Joe Biden's 
approval ratings are lower than Donald Trump's at this point during Trump's time in office. But my point is, yeah, I, I'm, I stipulate, I'm 100% in agreement that Biden has been a bad president. He succeeded a bad president, and the bad president that he beat, who lost a presidential race, is still got a higher, a tighter grip on his party than, than Biden does. Now, there's also some reasons, you know, Trump developed this cult of personality, and I don't think we could Biden ever never say, did. Yes. never right. had, never. He is president because he is not named Donald Trump. He doesn't that have a is, cult of personality in his family. No, that is, that is why he is president today is because his name is not Donald Trump. So he didn't have this loyalty coming in and what little loyalty he had is slipping away. But still, if you went a year or so, year and a half after the 1992 election, you don't have a cult of George H.W. Bush still. If you go a year and a half after Jimmy Carter's loss, you don't have like, well, we need to run Jimmy Carter back against Ronald Reagan. I mean, this is very unusual to have this level of dedication to a defeated one-term president. Um, so it's slipping. That's the glass half full, but the glass half empty is he's still got a stronger hold on his party than Joe Biden does. Yeah, and, and to be fair, I mean, again, I think he, I think it's slipping. I think he is becoming the leader of a significant faction within the Republican Party. Um, and what's different now is that the other factions which always kind of existed now have more oxygen not to be cowardly in saying that they're not part of the Trump faction. Yes. So that's significant. It's meaningful. I hope the trend continues. On the other hand, if we had primaries starting tomorrow, it is not obvious to me that Trump couldn't get the nomination. Yeah. Because the same <clears throat> collective action problem, the same, you know, belling the cat problem, the same, you know, all he needs is a significant plurality to take Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and then the way the system works, it's almost impossible to catch up. And that's entirely possible. So it's it's by no means is like the GOP free and clear from Trump. It's just looking better than it was. So let me ask, I let me ask around, you this. Let, I want to yeah. ask y'all a question. Yep. <laughs> What is the difference in the dynamic if Trump declares very soon, as there keep being rumors swirling that he will, versus declaring after some other people, you know, a DeSantis or a Pence? Does the fact, if he declares in the next few weeks or next few days, weeks, whatever, how much will that deter challengers or will people just go ahead and step up, cowboy up and take him on anyway? Yeah, so I've I've been on record for a long time saying that I don't think it matters much whether Trump runs or not. I think most of the Republican candidates who are thinking of running today and have been thinking of running for the past six months or 12 months will run regardless. Um, Nikki Haley, who previously ruled out a run if Donald Trump won, was asked in this Associated Press story if she still stood by that in light of the damaging testimony that we've gotten on the January 6th committee. And she did, she declined to answer. She didn't say she wouldn't run again. I think that's I think that's notable. The the you know Ron DeSantis is is being um, 
sort of circumspect. I think the other Republicans, Haley was just in Iowa, Mike Pompeo spent a bunch of time in Iowa. You have these these would-be candidates making regular trips to New Hampshire. Um, they're actually campaigning. What's happening right now behind the scenes is they're putting together their presidential campaigns. I think they're more likely to run I think they're 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 likely to run regardless of whether Donald Trump announces soon, as the New York Times reported he might. I think if he announces soon, it looks desperate. It it and, and it may not matter, right? We've seen it, these kinds of things not matter for Donald Trump in the past, but it will signal yet again that he cares far more about Donald Trump than he cares about the Republican Party, because you wouldn't do that in advance of uh, the 2022 midterms if you cared about the Republican Party. Winning, um, so I, I think there. I, I think we'll see a pretty big field. And then, Joni, you answer that, and then I'm going to ask both of you. It's a ver- it's a, it's a it's a closely related question to that one. Okay, so with the stipulation that no one freaking knows, right? I don't think Donald <laughs> Trump knows. Uh, yeah. No one know, No one knows. But I will now say with absolute certainty. No, um, I I will say uh, I think it does matter when he announces. And um, up until fairly recently, I worried about him announcing too soon, too soon, and foreclosing some people running. But the more I think about it, the more I'm not saying I want to predict this, but I feel good that it's a pretty serious possibility is that it could blow up in his face in the sort of careful what you wish for kind of thing where let's say he announces in the next two weeks, some people won't run who otherwise would have. I think that is true. And I actually think that's bad for Trump. Trump does better the more people there are in the race. And if he clears the field of a bunch of people who would end up endorsing him a la Chris Christie in 2016, and making him feel inevitable, all the better. And so there are people who I think are going to run no matter what. Tom Cotton's one. I I like this. Well, I don't. I, I suspect Pompeo, but I honestly don't know for sure about Pompeo. I think Liz Cheney. The only way she does run is if Trump runs, because she's going to chase him around saying, "I want my two dollars" or whatever that line is, forever. And um, uh. And I think DeSantis runs no matter what. And a smaller field is actually better because it for makes Trump, it, you think? No, for beating Trump. Yeah, for beating because, Trump. Right, right. Yeah, because the smaller the field, the more he actually has to engage. Um, I'm not saying a tiny field. I don't want it like Bradley versus Gore, where it's just two people or something like that, although that wouldn't be terrible in some ways either. But I do think it would be good if a number of people announced before him, because if they announce, if every serious person who announces that they're going to run before he does, it's less likely he announces he's going to run because the reason why he wants to announce soon is he really just wants a coronation. And if you send the signal to him that he can't have a coronation, I think it makes it much less likely that he runs, which is one reason why I would love it if congressional Republicans started to announce like now that they're going to back i don't care who desantis nikki haley pompeo cotton whoever and just say and just say they're my guy and that gives them 
and out now before Trump says he's running. Right. Right. So that way they're like, look, I'm already committed to Pence or whoever. I'm not I can't I can't switch now. And that just makes it seem like the party is moving on without Trump, which I think is the best way to get him to not run. So but everybody I mean, nobody else other than Trump is going to even contemplate an announcement or a faint towards a run before the midterms. It's just not fair. And I think that probably won't won't happen. You've bumped up against my question, and I want you to answer it directly and clearly. Same with you, David. Do you think it's better for there to be fewer, let's say fewer than five challengers to Trump, or better in the long run for there to be many, let's say more than 10 challengers to Trump, if the goal is to not have Donald Trump be the next president of the United States? More than 10 is sheer insanity. Like, what the heck? <laughs> have we learned nothing? But the real issue isn't so much the number at the start, it's how quickly they winnow down. So, you know, what we had in 2016 was people staying in well beyond the point where they would have gotten out in earlier cycles because they just, I feel like they just couldn't believe that Trump was going to stay, was going to win this thing. And they didn't want to be the sucker that got out too soon. I mean, what's the logic of John Kasich staying in his life? And, and I'm still mad about it. I don't even want to yeah. think about it. I'm still mad about it. But multiple candidates stayed in too late. So yeah, 10 insane, but at least it's manageable if people go ahead and fall out of the race after a primary or two. But five can be fatal to the effort of trying to replace Donald Trump if all five stay in too long. Jonah, is David right? I think Dave is largely right. Um, I know there's a debate, we've talked about this before, about whether Trump would participate in debates. Um, I think debates are worse for him, the fewer people there are, um, because the more he talks, the worse it is for him. Um, and so having that stuff narrowed down to serious candidates who know how to press Trump's buttons in ways that we didn't know in 2016, um, I think is important. I, I think having another giant 16 man steel cage thing of a primary is just such an incredibly bad idea um, if you actually don't want him to get the nomination again. So uh, I strongly disagree with both of you. I think you're both wrong. You, you cannot possibly. I think it, it's absolutely <laughs> crucial that there be a huge number of Republicans running in a primary against Donald Trump. You got close to the right answer, David, when you said what matters most fever? is when they winnow. <laughs> no, here's my logic. For the better part of six years, we have not heard other Republicans criticize Donald Trump. Mostly everybody endorsed what he said. Mostly everybody backed what he wanted. Certainly anybody who was MAGA or MAGA adjacent, adjacent or could be seen as a conservative held their tongue didn't criticize him, didn't say anything, backed him, you know, criticized him for three hours after January 6th and then moved on. I think if you have more candidates running, including people like Tom Cotton and Mike Pompeo and others, and they offer a detailed, sustained critique of Donald Trump 
in their cases, I think from the right, but there will be other people criticizing him from the left or the center or what have you. But there will be in this, in this group, a wide variety of critiques of Donald Trump from other Republicans. I think he loses. If it's one or two other Republicans, people can shrug it off, dismiss it. No big deal. It's crucial that there are a lot of Republicans who run against him at the beginning. I think it's crucial that there's a lot of Republicans who declare they're not voting for Trump um, or who endorse people other than Trump. I don't think it's crucial that you have all those people in the race. It's crucial that you have the right kinds of Republicans. It can't just be, look, I like Larry Hogan a lot. It can't just be like Larry Hogan, Mitt Romney, maybe Jeff Flake. It's got to be people who are considered not just, you know, non-rhinos as much as I think that term is idiotic, but it's got to be people who are seen as, as having once been on board the Trump train, right? So Pence, Pompeo, Cotton, Cruz, if those guys do it, I don't think you need a ton of them. You just need a critical mass of them to make it clear that they're not intimidated and they're not, and they're, and they feel comfortable criticizing Trump. And if, if you get that, then the game theory that Dave and I are talking about kicks in and you have to talk about how do you limit his plurality so that he doesn't keep winning those early primaries. But you have to give people in my view, a number of voter Republican primary voters, a number of other candidates to choose from, particularly early, so that they are hearing these other arguments. I can see that I've convinced you and you're both just yeah. done answering, done answering yeah. the questions. <laughs> you just you just go silent when I'm right. All right, let's yeah. let's get to a couple questions. Um, that is not the only reason I go silent when you're talking, Steve. I just Christopher Hall. <laughs> Christopher Hall, if the two major party candidates are Trump and Biden. Is there any reason to think that a third party candidate, such as, say, Liz Cheney, if she were to run as an independent, could win? I don't think she has a chance as an independent. I think she has much more of a chance as a Republican. Frankly, I think she has much more of a chance as a Democrat um, than she does as an independent. I just, I mean. Are you talking nationally or in in? her home state or no nationally oh, as a yeah. presidential candidate in 2024 if it's trump versus biden could a third party the, you know, the, are, you know, to be honest i could win. see i could see the argument that someone like liz cheney if it's trump versus biden that especially if biden sort of stumbles in certain ways literally or figuratively um where people are just sort of like she proved that she's a serious person blah blah blah, blah. but that's a one in a hundred shot. I would say. What if did it, you say I, Trump's chances were at the beginning of the Republican primary in 2016? Very low. Less than one in the one in 100. So you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> I mean, that's your argument. But let me, but it, seriously, when you're talking about a Biden versus Trump, that is screaming for a third option. That, yeah. that is screaming for a third option because <laughs> Yeah, Trump has a, his core MAGA base, which is, you know, 35-40% at of the Republican Party. Um Biden has a a base in the Democratic Party smaller, 
than Trump's base and the Republican Party. And there will be an enormous, there would be an enormous amount of national angst that we're doing this again, that it's failed president versus at least so far seems like failed president is the next next matchup. It seems to me if you're ever going to have a third party possibility, and it is very hard, a third party path is really, really hard. But if you're ever going to do it, I mean, that a Biden-Trump sequel seems to be the time. Yeah, I, th- I mean, look, I don't think I don't think it's likely that we'll see an independent presidential candidate in 2024. I also didn't think it was likely. I mean, I thought it was near impossible that Donald Trump would have been the Republican nominee and that he would have won the 2020 or the 2016 election cleanly. Um, I think people who are willing to sort of project in a straight line after the volatility that we've seen, not just for the past six or eight years, but really the past 15 to 20 years are crazy. We don't know what would happen. I think it's entirely possible that that, that that could happen. Um, the, um, similar question, but from the other angle from Will Heffron, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Here's the other consideration. If Trump runs and starts losing primaries, does he run third party and or just destroy the party? You know, he won't just concede and walk away. I mean, I think that last, that last point is indisputable. He won't just concede and walk away. It's not like you can see it. Let's say Tom Cotton beats Donald Trump in a Republican primary. It's, it's inconceivable to me that Donald Trump would say, you know, the best man won. I endorse Tom Cotton. I'm going to campaign in a helpful way so that Tom Cotton defeats. Like, it's never going to happen. What would happen if Donald Trump lost a Republican primary? What would happen? I think that's a very plausible scenario. I think that is, it is isn't much it? more plausible scenario than I mean, I, I want to take back one thing about the Liz Cheney uh, 20, uh, 24 independent thing. You know, as I've said a million times around here, the classic line about third parties is is Richard Hofstetter's where he says, you know, they're like bees. They have their effect by stinging and then they die. And the whole point is that they tend to hurt the party they're most similar to. This is a case where you could actually see large numbers of people voting for Liz Cheney in the relevant states as a way to punish Trump. Um, so you would get more spiteful voters who are Democrats than you normally would for a conservative independent. Um, and you would get more sincere Republicans who just couldn't stomach the idea of another Trump. So it's possible you could see her beating the Ross Perot numbers from 1992 on the Trump taking his ball and going home thing. I think if he loses New Hampshire, if he loses Iowa and New Hampshire back to back and then South Carolina goes away from him, he definitely declares the election was rigged, which is what he did after Wisconsin in 2016. Right. Um, and does something petulant. I'm taking my ball and going home, um, whether he calls it a third party or, or not, but he totally does what he did to Georgia and say, systems rigged. There's no point in voting. Um, and has a hissy fit. I think that's so he'd hard. have a vested interested in whoever beat him losing. Like that, yeah. he he would have a he has no regard for whether or not the person who beat him would be better for the country. 
So, so thinking about that, and this is not to take a fun conversation and turn it a little more serious. What do you think is the likelihood of, of real sort of disruption because of claim, either because of, and I'm looking forward here to 2024, either actual attempts to, to manipulate the vote, uh, claims about manipulated votes, um, uh, one party not participating fully, um, secretaries of state elected in swing states who aren't committed to a fair, clean, and open vote. Um, we see some reporting on that. We're doing some reporting on it. We're going to have some more. But it feels to me like that's a, a likelier scenario than a lot of people are talking about at this early time. Am I just being paranoid? I mean, definitely not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, how could anybody credibly say you're being paranoid? I, you know, I think the seriousness of efforts at disruption are directly related to the closeness of the underlying count. So if Trump is blown out, he'll 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 act the same way whether he's blown out or whether it's close. It's just that the closer it is, the more likely that his his call will be taken seriously. I, I have, I agree with that. I, I have a different question for you. Let's say the legal, I mean, we had a grand jury sort of step up things in, in Georgia today. Uh, who knows the January 6th thing is going. Another apparently interesting new witness has been added to the roster. Um, let's say Donald Trump is starting to get really sick of his legal and, um, and other liabilities. And Joe Biden says to him, Hey, look, I'll give you a blanket pardon for all of it. And sort of the way Jerry Ford did to Nixon. Um, you have to have some kind of mea culpa. We can, we can negotiate that language. And, Part of the pardon, which I th I believe, David, you can correct me on this. I believe pardons can be conditioned on certain things, right? So you could say in the language of the pardon that you are not eligible to run for president again. Um, does it make sense for Biden to do it? I mean, we don't know if it makes sense. Let me put it this way. It doesn't matter whether it makes sense for Trump to do it because his ego has him do things that don't make sense for him all the time. So it's not worth playing it up, but does it make, would it be right for the country and would it be smart for Biden to try it? Interesting. Just as a technical legal matter, he'd also have to convince the Georgia grand jury to, or not the grand jury, but Georgia prosecutors not to follow through with any state prosecution because Biden can't pardon state crimes. Right. So but my guess is you have the right conversation with the Georgia yeah. prosecutors and they'll go along with the white house and something like that. I mean, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting concept. I mean, I, I accepting the pardon and refusing to, and, and decide declining to run again, agreeing not to run again would look a lot to America, like a plea bargain, like a plea bargain. I mean, it would. Okay. It would, yeah, it would have some. I know that's what I'm saying. Like it's a good thing. That like that's a good thing. 
Because it's implying guilt, right? The only way you do this is if you're you feel like sure. you're legitimately missing out on jail. I would be pleased with that kind of resolution personally. Um, all right, last question, real quick. Well, actually, my second last question, Laura. I will mispronounce your last name, Degalier. Degalier. Steve Hayes. Is that a spotted cow you are drinking? Um, the answer is no. It's a spotted cow I just finished, um, but it was very good. And the other one for Wisconsin people, this is League Night from Door County Brewing Company. High quality. Wisconsin is still a good beer state. Um, okay, real last question. Does Donald, does Donald Trump have enough competent people still around him to mount a third-party challenge if it came to it? And does he need them? I mean, he didn't have a lot of competent people when he won in 2016. All he needs to do is get on ballots. And, and that's complicated, but not exactly rocket science. Yeah, at the same time, the only place where the two parties, first of all, work well together, and second of all, work well, <laughs> is in maintaining the two-party duopoly. Um, for state election laws. And so I, you know, I could see the Republicans making it difficult. And, but yeah, I mean, like, uh, it, de it depends when that strategy kicks in. I mean, and, and David, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's just some of it has to do with like deadlines. Mm -hmm. Like there's, there's some sore loser law states that say if you run in one party, you can't then just run um, as an independent. And that could, depending on what those states are, that alone could do it. And then they'd have to mount a massive write-in thing or something. So I don't know. Um, but I, hear, I for one, I'm not going to sit here and have people cast aspersions on the, the, the skills of, you know, Jason Miller. Um, Corey Lewandowski. And Corey Lewandowski. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, Seb Gorka could be, you know, his shadow secretary of state. Wouldn't be John Eastman, right? White House yeah. Counsel, Pam Bundy, Attorney General, the glories that await. Wow. Okay. Well, <laughs> scary thoughts to end the discussion with. Um, three minutes over. Thank you all for sticking with us. Thanks, Jonah. Thanks, David. Um, good questions. We will be back with you. I will not be back with you next week, but some of us will be back with you uh, next week, same time, Tuesday, 8 o'clock. Thanks for joining for Dispatch Live. See ya. Are we clear?